Hi, everybody. It's Michelangelo Caruso, and I'm on today with Kristen Harrell. She is a licensed psychologist in southeastern Michigan. How are you, Kristen? I'm doing very well. How are you? Doing great, thanks. We're going to talk a little bit about the human condition today. Are you up for that? Yes. <laughs> this is your area of expertise. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you go to school? So I did my undergraduate degree at uh, Michigan State University. Yeah. After that, I have a master's in forensic psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. And then I have my PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Detroit Mercy. Excellent. So uh, I think most people probably understand every word you said just now, except perhaps the word forensic, which I had <laughs> the great pleasure of looking up the other day because I had forgotten what it meant. And as I recall, forensic has kind of an underbelly tone to it. It has to do with crime and the criminal element. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. So it's in terms of uh, forensic psychology, it's how human behavior influences, you know, things like, you know, crimes, victimizations, that sort of thing. My research was much more on kind of the victimization aspect of it. Okay. So when we talk about forensic psychology, we're talking about CSI. We're talking about um, um, expert witness type work, that sort of thing? Yes. Yeah. And psychological assessment. Mm -hmm. Psychological assessment of criminals, if we were going to chase it all the way down the, all the way down the line. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And uh, I've heard the term forensic accounting a lot. And, and I, I always thought it was just uh, people that did a certain type of accounting, but it's, it's based in criminal activity, uh, white collar crime, for example, we're going into the numbers to find out where somebody went wrong. And whenever we do this, we're, we're, it's an interesting exercise because most people know the difference between right and wrong, but we make decisions sometimes subconsciously, but more often consciously. We think we're smarter than the average bear or that maybe we can get around uh, something or maybe we can game the system somehow. What is it about human beings, Kristen, that we think we can, we can get the, we can beat the system that we're smarter than everybody else? Well, human beings are just so incredibly complex and different things from our past uh, influence the way that we behave, uh, the way that we think, the way that we problem solve. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of people, like you mentioned before, kind of either consciously or unconsciously behave in ways of which they have been known to adapt and what they have been taught, mm -hmm. um, often from a very young age, yeah. and it's kind of all they know. So um, I think that that's kind of what influences a lot of human behavior and kind of when people present for therapy, it's because that the way that they're kind of going through life is giving them some sort of of trouble and they're able to have a little bit more um, awareness that they want to make some kind of improvements or changes in that. You know, you got me going on this whole criminal thing that, that, uh, that people, for example, uh, good people, people who would um, normally say that they're honest and upstanding citizens um, steal from their employer in small ways, ways that they, they, they somehow calculate in their own mind are not important ways, and therefore it's not actually stealing. Mm -hmm. this, this, uh, this blurry line between, uh, it, it, with regard to morality, mm -hmm. um, well, how is it that we cut ourselves a doctor's note you know, for uh, stuff like stealing office supplies from work 
Um, lots of research suggests that people that get busted for shoplifting actually have the money to pay for what they're stealing in their pocket. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Well, I, I feel like a lot of kind of rationalization yeah. kind of goes through that. Um, they're thinking of, oh, you know, my boss made me do X, Y, and Z. Um, I'm not being paid enough, so I kind of deserve this. People yeah. rationalize, um, you know, through that, that way in terms of kind of stealing from the workplace. Like, I'm working here. I'm, I'm, you know, spending a lot of my time and energy away from my family. This is no big deal. So they kind of rationalize this that way. Um, In in terms of shoplifting, I I think from what I've kind of read and kind of deduced is it's much more of kind of like a a thrill seeking. Um, It's the can I get away with it? They get that kind of like adrenaline going and it feels like when they're able to to steal something that they're kind of getting away with something and they get that kind of feeling of high, those endorphins kind of really rushing towards them. And these are these are individual decisions. Shoplifting is not something Although some people, you know, make it a, a team sport. There's a, there's a confederate that's drawing attention away from, you know, we've seen all this happen a lot. Uh, but a lot of these things that we're talking about, stealing office supplies from work and stuff, it's an individual decision. The person's acting alone. But we've seen another thing happen in today's society, which is a version of this, a version of groupthink, where uh, I'm thinking of people who are making um, protests and that sort of thing where we, we, and I I mentioned this to you because it's an intellectual process, right? I'm gonna leave the safety and comfort of my own home where I probably should be tonight watching television or doing homework or looking after my family. And I'm gonna go out into the cold, wet street after I have a a couple drinks and be with a bunch of people who are angry. So we're seeing a little bit of this. It's it's toned down this year, but we saw a lot of it last year. you do some work with how groups affect individuals? I mean, not necessarily in terms of like, uh, as like what maybe a social psychologist would, but I understand kind of the impact of how people can be influenced uh, among a group. Um, It feels much safer to, to participate in some sort of kind of global cause if you have kind of the support of a larger network of groups. So we can kind of think in terms of kind of protests and being very passionate about something, um, wanting to kind of rally for that force. We wouldn't necessarily do so kind of individually, but we feel safer amongst a group, amongst a larger group of being able to do that. Yeah. And it's not just physical. It's not just a physical proximity that makes us feel safer. I'm going to guess I've been in therapy twice in my life, so I'm not an expert in it by any stretch. But I would imagine that uh, that you hear from people in your in your sessions, which, of course, are confidential, um, that people are often referencing third parties like my friend or uh, my uh, family member, my husband, my wife. Um, to the point where you, you, you actually wonder who you're actually talking to. You're asking someone how they feel and, or how they think, but they mm-hmm. constantly reference a third party. Do you, do you see that a lot in our society? Um, I, I think that we are very observant uh, creatures. And a lot of what we do is kind of an awareness of what we see from around us that can kind of influence how we think and act and behave. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely see that. Yeah. Um, 
we also are seeing some things happening in in the uh, mental health industry, and I'm not talking about extreme cases, just a, just a shifts in how we think about each other and how we treat each other. Uh, an easy example of this is the Me Too campaign, which has women thinking about not only uh, thinking about themselves differently, but perhaps thinking about all of you know the male gender differently um, uh, in terms of how much more uh, how how we'll handle future behavior, how we handle certain types of dialogue. Um, I think most people have been monitoring this. Do you do you think that we'll see some changes in in how the genders treat each other and how we interact? I definitely think so. I, I mean, I, I think it's kind of been around and kind of more or less kind of whispered about, but I, I think with the Me Too movement really kind of made it kind of explode and really come kind of front and center, kind of is very much in your face in, in terms of uh, in terms of society. It allowed women to be able to feel safer in speaking up and talking about their stories. And I'm not just, you know, not just women either, you know, men who have been sexually harassed as well. Um, but I definitely, you know, as it is brought to kind of this very societal cultural level, it's created more of a safe space to be able to talk about, to be able to acknowledge its existence, and then also um, uh, allow like us all as a society to say, you know, this is kind of unacceptable. And I think once, you know, topics get brought to such like a, a large mainstream in terms of media setting, uh, it creates more of that awareness and for more people to kind of talk about it. And then, you know, what are we going to do about so I definitely think, you know, and I'm certainly hoping that it leads to kind of, you know, changes in the way that, you know, we treat ourselves and what, how we allow others to, to treat ourselves as well. There's an interesting thing going on, you know, that uh, uh, this kind of, uh, I don't know, this, this idea that men and women can, can uh, one of the things that gets us in trouble is the fact that we're different. Why can't we all be more the same and then we won't have so many differences and i wonder sometimes how much can you expect from a gender how, how much movement can there be toward the center before we lose our own identities where men stop being men women stop being women we're all just robots um i heard somebody joke the other day you know that men for some time now have just wandered the earth urinating on their own pants six or seven times a day <laughs> because that's just who we are. I mean, a woman would never do that. But, but, but men do it and don't think anything of it. How much can we expect men to change? Um, certainly, we need, we need a more reasonable standard of uh, etiquette. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, and then the other direction. Uh, is part of our society a bit too sensitive? Do we need to be calibrated a little bit more carefully so that we can coexist? I don't think it's necessarily kind of like changing genders. What I kind of see it as, as creating kind of like a, a safer, mm. more respective environment for everybody. Yeah. Um, how are we going to, to speak to other people? How are we going to allow others to speak to us? Um, and not kind of allowing things to become so passive, um, which is how I feel like women have been taught to deal with harassment mm. um, and sometimes men with harassment. 
if they're if they're sexually harassed as well, it's just to kind of just blow it off. Yeah. Um, now I feel like it's very much of you know maybe taking a stand. Maybe it's you know uh, excuse me, like I I heard you say that and that's very inappropriate. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily fighting back, but it's just kind of creating a little bit more of a boundary of what we're going to be able to withstand just as a society in general. Yeah, yeah, very good. You used the word safe a minute ago. I, I know that uh, there's been some gender shifting or gender flexibility lately where uh, people, um, you know, there's uh, uh, people changing genders. There's a, there's a kind of a, uh, I saw a term the other day, uh, gender free. I, I don't know what the actual term was where they don't identify with being this person doesn't identify with being female or male, mm-hmm. even to the extent of going back in time to revise the original birth certificate. Mm-hmm. So here's the question. Uh, again, we want people to be, feel comfortable and safe. Um, what's to happen with, um, what's to happen with, when, is, when are things not normal? If everything is okay, where do, where do we draw the line? Should lines be drawn for this kind of a thing? What do you think? I mean, in terms of kind of um, the the gender identity and, and a gender is what's kind of uh, the kind of clinical term for for someone who identifies not kind of as as any gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of kind of structure, I would say it, if it's inhibiting one's ability to kind of navigate life successfully, then it's given people a problem, whether that involves kind of like a societal change. I'm not really quite sure um, because I like to kind of look at people in more of like an individualist way, but um, it it definitely has created a lot of media attention. And it's something that I am very much interested in kind of looking at because I feel that it's very controversial. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned, does it affect other areas of your life? You know, a, a, a while back I was looking up, researching addiction a little bit because I wanted to get a more clear definition of what addiction really entails. And it's a hard definition to come by. I saw one rather sophisticated, elaborate, trusted website uh, listed like 10 or 12 things. It was a checklist. And if you have like seven of them, then you're addicted. Mm -hmm. What is the formula for this? How do you figure this out? But one of the things that came up on the list in almost every uh, source that I looked in was, is it negatively impacting other areas of your life? Yep. And I suppose that's when people start thinking, maybe I need to talk to somebody like you, mm-hmm. or maybe I need to you know, get into a, a counseling or a therapy or something so that I can get some help because, because now we've crossed that line I referenced a, a minute ago. We have gone from feeling good about ourselves and safe uh, and productive in life to a place that maybe didn't feel that doesn't feel quite as good. And so now it's time to take action and and maybe see somebody and get it fixed. Mm -hmm. A very small percentage of the U S population is in therapy, correct? Yes. What percentage uh, do we know? 2%, 5%? No, I am. I am not sure. I I would say less, less than 5%. I would too. And then, so it begs the question, what percentage of the U.S. population should be in therapy? <laughs> oh gosh, you know what? And I, I always say it in a very kind of uh, like happy manner that I think every single person could kind of benefit from therapy. Oh, for I sure. Think that there, there's kind of a um, 
like therapy gets a bad rap <laughs> and um, just kind of like psychology, um, mental health in general, I feel like has kind of a, a negative connotation. Um, it's shifting, thankfully now, but um, I feel like I like to explain therapy to people as um, having a supportive environment where you can kind of create a great greater, deeper sense of self-awareness, um, that it doesn't necessarily have to be in the midst of you kind of being in a crisis situation for you to, for you to come to. Oftentimes that's kind of, I mean, we want to get you to, to therapy and kind of working towards things before we get to that point. Um, so we can kind of create like a little bit of knowledge about, you know, your, your warning signs, some of your healthier coping skills, maybe help you identify coping skills that could be helpful. Um, but I just think that therapy is just a great tool to helping you live a more fulfilling life. Absolutely true. You know, it's interesting to me that we have so many specialists that we go to. We'll go to an orthodontist to straighten our teeth. We'll go to a cardiologist for heart, heart trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll go to a nephrologist if we have issues with our kidneys. Mm -hmm. And we don't mind sharing any of this. Uh, probably not in open, you know, freeform conversation with strangers. Mm -hmm. But we don't mind telling people, I got to go to the doctor and I'm, I'm having something looked at. Mm -hmm. But we are very, very shy and protective of what's going on up here. If we were gonna go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist, that would be like a deepest, darkest secret. And we would never tell anybody about that except anybody that had to know. And you're right, it's like a stigma, man. Yeah. And I don't know how it got to be that way. Uh, I have a theory that we spend more energy on our dead cells, like our skin and our hair and our fingernails, than mm -hmm. we do on our important live cells, which are our organs, like our brain. Now, it's come a long way because we used to put people that had, quote, issues into special buildings called, what are they called, uh, asylums and sanitariums and places like that. We don't even have any of those in Michigan anymore because there's, allegedly, there's help for those people, right? Well, we, we do still have inpatient psychiatric hospitals. They're just so incredibly overcrowded. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, they're, and they're certainly not of... Uh, what we would kind of what we see in the media as kind of like mental health asylums um, but yeah it, it does the mental health is very much stigmatized mental illness is very stigmatized um, how I try to kind of work with that in therapy um, in terms of you know I kind of talk about it like how you would you know if you had um, you know a heart problem you'd have no trouble going to a cardiologist you know you're going through some things right now just think of it kind of that way it's it's kind of no different of a treatment I think part of it is that that we're not big our society right now we don't value introspection we don't value uh, knowing ourselves extremely well we put a higher value on other things I was talking with a good friend of mine the other day who, who has a health problem. And uh, I was just asking him basic questions about his condition. And I was shocked, shocked that not only didn't he know the answers after having the condition for months, mm -hmm. he didn't want to know the answers. I was more curious about his body than he was. Yeah. And if he feels that way about, you know, stuff below the neck, imagine how protected and tightly held... Uh, above the neck issues are like, mm -hmm. uh, well, what are we seeing now? Insecurity, um, uh, bipolar, uh, what, what, what's trending right now? What seems to be uh, a big issue for people? 
in, in terms of, of, of therapy? Yeah, or conditions. Um, uh, I know some of them are rare, like um, uh, personality disorders and things like that. But insecurity, and uh, which I don't know is a clinical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> but, but the stuff that, the, the underlying things of, of, of not being yourself and not being okay upstairs, they have like, it's like a stair step thing, right? It starts with not having other parts of your life in order. Isn't that true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and in terms of kind of if uh, if we're talking about kind of themes and underlying themes of what people kind of are reluctant to to talk about and be about is I would say vulnerability. Vulnerability. Let's talk about yeah. that. Uh, to take that introspection to really kind of dive deep into um, reasons why you feel a certain way, um, reasons why you behave a certain way. What would happen if you were to change it? Um, is that kind of piece um, and what we try to shy away from, like individually and and kind of on a on a larger scale, is vulnerability. We don't want to feel helpless. And talking about deeply personal things about yeah. ourselves make us yeah. feel incredibly vulnerable. Are you suggesting that vulnerability is like the uh, I don't know uh, the root cause of some of these issues that we have? This it leads to other things? Um, no, not necessarily. Um, no. Because it's an, I ask because it's an interesting theory. I mean, just go back to the Me Too campaign that we talked about, or the Me Too situation that we talked about a minute ago. There's, there are lots of theories that, that because women feel vulnerable, they're, they're finding themselves in positions they might not otherwise be in. Because they feel vulnerable, they don't speak out when something happens. Uh, because they're perceived as vulnerable by men, men take liberties. I mean, I think there's something to this vulnerability issue. Yeah, I mean, there. I mean, women kind of we are vulnerable. We are the the more vulnerable gender. Um, and to that, to the Me Too movement, I, I think kind of creates a, a little bit more kind of power and like a safer space for us to kind of take a little bit of that vulnerability and turn it into strength. Um, yes. kind of empower us a little bit. Yeah. And you know, by the way, uh, women don't have the market cornered on vulnerability. Men have vulnerability too, but we have other issues, right? We don't, we won't talk about it. We won't. Right. Men may probably, geez, it's difficult to say who has the bigger issue, but men struggle with vulnerability in a completely different way, in my opinion. Right. Um, like we're, we, we fake, we, men fake a lot of things going through life. Like we fake bravado and we fake mm-hmm. like we know how to do something and we fake it long enough to figure it out in some cases, in some cases mm-hmm. not, you know, <laughs> but it's just fascinating how any, any of us ever get through life because of all the potholes and all of the, all of the, uh, all of the things in our way. Uh, recently, uh, opioids have become a huge problem. Um, uh, opioids are a challenge for a lot of reasons. One is that they uh, that uh, they're uh, they're they're above board, at least with certain illnesses. You would expect to take painkillers to nurse yourself back from an illness. Mm-hmm. But the addictive properties of them, and then right. the mood, the mood changes of opioids. Don't, isn't that one of the big symptoms of opioid um, addiction? Is that your mood is unstable? It can kind of create more of like a sedative like effect of like a high, and that's kind of why it's 
um, addicting because okay. people like the way that it makes them feel. Right. So if you've been taking, and I know a number of people like this, you probably do too, who have experienced long-term opioid use. I don't even have to say addiction. Let's just say long-term opioid use. Right. But they're probably not feeling mm -hmm. themselves anymore. They've got, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, a new normal. And now they right. operate day to day from that place, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your body becomes physiologically dependent on that um, medication. Yeah. And, you know, what we have now is, is this, um, this, this emphasis for prescribing physicians to start drastically cutting down people's prescriptions because of the epidemic. Mm. Um, so what you have are, are people that have been on a certain high dose that they're physiologically dependent on. Uh, their, their prescribing physician, you know, drastically cuts it in half or, you know, not at all. And you're going through withdrawals and withdrawal from opiates isn't that fun. Um, you, and that's why we have, you know, these, these people that are going out on the streets getting synthetic opiates and that stuff is laced with all kinds of dangerous things, but your body, the withdrawal effect is so profound that that's what makes people, um, you know, seek for that. And it's, it's really, it's really unfortunate. I saw it a lot at the Detroit VA when I was working with veterans and it was heartbreaking. Yeah. But, and you know, he's been gone a while now, but Prince I think was had an opiate issue and he actually died from something called fentanyl. Do I have that right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a hundred times more potent than morphine. Wow. Yeah. And he didn't even know he was taking it. So he's, he's just dosing his regular dose and then they find him in the elevator, right? Yeah, but, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the story was. I mean, sometimes fentanyl patches will be prescribed after, after surgery, but, but you're not on that for long. And sometimes um, the opiates or heroin that's being sold on the streets um, is cut with fentanyl. And what you think you're getting is kind of pure heroin, but it's cut with fentanyl and you kind of dose it how you would, you would normally do for like a regular opiate use. And then, you know, because it's so incredibly potent, um, you know, you overdose. So. All right. So let's review. We've got, we've got a bunch of human beings on the planet walking around, extremely vulnerable, mm -hmm. making bad decisions, harming themselves with their own decisions. We've got TV commercials telling you what, what product you should ask your doctor to prescribe, <laughs> the AMA deciding to not honor those prescriptions because people don't know what's best for them, it turns out. We should probably leave that to the experts. We've got, um, we've got people trying to figure each other out but, but lacking the tools or the patience to do so. Where are we going? I mean, uh, this seems almost like a recipe for self-sabotage. Do you have faith in human nature? Are we going to figure this out? Oh, and I forgot to mention, we have a stigma that prevents us from actually going to get help on the yeah. very things we need help on. Yeah. I'm getting depressed. I might have to come <laughs> see you. Well, you know, kind of despite this, uh, this grim picture, um, I think at the end of the day, um, that is just those profound sense of resiliency that people have. In working with people and the the inner strength that a lot of people have to overcome um, you know it, it takes a lot uh, in terms of if we're talking about you know drug addiction or drug abuse um, but hopefully the message is getting out that that help is out there that it doesn't that help or you know 
isn't necessarily a pill that you take every day. Help is finding someone like a you know psychologist or a therapist that you can trust, be open, to really kind of talk about what's giving you trouble, where you wanna go in life, um, and being able to really do the work. Therapy is work. Therapy is not as simple as you know taking a pill. And I think kind of in our fast paced society where we very much want, you know, we want the answer, we want it now, we want it quick and we want it, you know, kind of immediate and therapy isn't like that, you know, unfortunately, you know, it takes time. It is hard work. Um, Chances are your symptoms are going to maybe feel a little bit worse in the beginning because you're kind of bringing it to the surface. Um, But after that, you know, we're talking about in the long term of it being so much better. Oh, Um, And that's, That's how I like to try to think about it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way because the long-term, the long-term result of therapy will put your life in order. And, and it, it's interesting; people don't know what they don't know. And if they've got that new normal, you know that they've been that suffering for so long that they they've actually forgotten what it's like to be free of those that that type of uh, bondage. It's interesting you had mentioned that help is not a pill, and you talked about going to see a therapist or a psychologist instead of taking the pill, we can't say go see a psychiatrist because psychiatrists can prescribe those pills, correct? Right. And, and I'm not necessarily saying that, that psychiatric medication is not helpful because it, yeah, it, in some it cases it, it absolutely is. Um, it, but in terms of kind of, you know, if we're talking about you know, feeling very anxious and then just getting a prescription for a benzodiazepine, sure, it, it kind of helps the physiological response uh, for anxiety, it doesn't really treat kind of the underlying issues. That's right. um, so that's that's kind of what I mean by that. <laughs> so so shy of medication, and of course we do want people to go get help or go talk to somebody if they're if they're in a long term uh, situation, negative situation. What other ways? And we'll close with this. I, I so appreciate your time tonight. Um, what are, what are ways that people can like when I grew up, there was this, this, this thing called uh, Heloise Home Remedies or something. You know, you could just get stuff under your, from, from your pantry or your sink to, you know, get stains out of the carpet and stuff. Stuff that you could do at home to fix the problem. Do you have a, a, a short list of things that people can do to break the cycle of self-sabotage and try to get back to, get their heads back to where they should be? Is it, is it as easy as uh, cleaning out your car? if it's a mess or, 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 you know, cleaning out the garage, if you're a hoarder? <laughs> well, what I, what I like to try to do when I, when I open up kind of uh, the first sessions of asking like, how do you want to live your life? What's important to you? Mm-hmm. Um, how different is your life now? Mm-hmm. Uh, what brings you kind of value importance? What kind of drives you as a human being? Um, where do you think you're at now? Okay. Or I ask kind of the miracle question, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and your life would be perfect, how would it look? Yeah. What, um, do, you, what do you charge for that, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, ha- I don't have a magic wand. I wish uh, I did. No. <laughs> um, but, but I kind of, you know, ask more or less of kind of thinking about that. Journaling is, is a really great way of, uh-huh of being able to kind of write down, write down your thoughts, um, that I, um, that I, you know, in- encourage people to do a lot of the time, yeah. uh, taking time for themselves. What, what makes you like, are you eating enough? 
Are you getting six to eight hours of sleep? Are you engaging in exercise, you know, 30 minutes, three times a week? Um, are you, are you getting, you know, appropriate medical care? Are you going to the doctor if you're sick? Um, do you have any outstanding medical conditions? Because that can greatly influence our psychological uh, wellness as well. Um, and then are you also doing things that you enjoy that are fun? Um, because that brings such joy to our life, leisure, that I think a lot of people kind of get caught up in the day-to-day -day, uh, things that we have to do yeah. and aren't doing things that, you know, we kind of like to do. So to be able to treat ourselves with kindness, you know, are you being kind to yourself? Yeah, I like it. Um, and, and, you know, we're hearing the basics, right? Uh, are you eating nutritious foods? Are you getting exercise on a regular basis? And, of course, that's always open to interpretation. Right. The definition of exercise. Right. Are you sleeping? Because a lot of people practicing pitiful sleep hygiene where they're, yeah. they're actually in bed and they think they're sleeping, but it's not a very restful sleep based on some right. things that are going on in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. uh, and you mentioned journaling, which I took special interest in because journaling takes us back to that. It's almost like a, uh, it's almost like a forced introspection. Because mm -hmm. journaling almost like, I always tell people that, because I teach presentation skills, that if you get up and wing it, who knows what's going to happen, but if you actually prepare your speech in advance and you're moving things around in the page and you're working a little bit more on your transitions, you improve your speech by 50% just through the process of writing. And I think that, I think that that probably helps a lot when people are trying to get their head in order as well. Right. Yeah. Especially if they look for patterns uh, in their journal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, hmm. So these are great ideas from, uh, from a professional, everybody. I hope you've been, uh, taking notes and, and um, one more question, Kristen, we mentioned the basics. Um, I think human touch is really important. And I, I sometimes wonder if we're treating each other enough to enough love. And I'm not just talking about sexual kinds of love. I'm just talking about um, physical touch from another person. I've met a couple people just in the last few weeks who confessed to me, and I don't know how it came up, that they had never been to a massage, to get a massage. Mm. And, they, and I said, well, maybe you, that's okay because you had kids and you, you know, you're married, you got a wife who probably rub your back once in a while. <laughs> I, just, I just watched to see that his expression and it's just like blank, like, no, that never happened either, you know. Oh, and that's important, isn't it? This, this feeling of human, talk about the ultimate human connection. It's actually touching another human being if you've got that kind of a relationship in your life. But even if you don't, you can go get a massage once in a while, yeah? So I feel like we're in that uh, commercial EF Hutton where, where, where the guy stops talking and, and everybody in the room turns to see what happened because our connection has Eddie. died. There you are, Kristen. We're waiting. Yes. Okay, you're back. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes. We, we missed your answer to the, uh, the value of massage and touch. Would you put that on the list of things people could do to kind of reconnect with the people that they live with and that sort of thing? Oh, yes. I feel, you know, like hugging is, is huge. You know, it makes us feel it's all encompassing. It makes us feel safe. Um, and it's, it's a very great way of, of comforting people, holding hands. Um, yeah, human touch is absolutely so incredibly important. It makes us feel safe and, and loved and appreciated. Not just like you mentioned, kind of in a sexual way or romantic way, but, um, you know, we hug our friends. We, we shake hands with people that we meet. It, it's a way to connect. That's right. That's right. Very good. 
Krista, tell everybody where they can uh, where they can find out more about your practice and maybe uh, uh, either hire you as a speaker or maybe uh, book a session with you. So I uh, have a website. It's uh, www.drkristenharrellphd.com. Uh, and I can also be reached at my business line at 248-955-5699. And let's spell out the website for people. It's Dr. D-R, of course, Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, Harrell, H-U-R-R-E-L-L, and then Ph.D. is spelled Ph.D., everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen, you've been delightful. I hope we get a chance to work together sometime in the community. I, I sense that's in our future, and, um, and thank you so much for being with me on the podcast. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. See you later. Okay. Bye-bye.